Are you out there doing your best to get on with life? Because, as you already know, it's what you make of your life that really counts. And sometimes having a few shortcuts to help you on your way can be very useful. The NLP Matters podcast might just be the toolbox you need to focus your attention, your effort, your drive onto what really does make the difference. Built on the foundation of neuro-linguistic programming, the NLP Matters podcast offers proven recipes you can use to create and sustain your life your way. G'day and welcome to the NLP Matters podcast. I'm your host, Joe Clark. Over the last few episodes, we've been diving deep as we thoroughly investigate what NLP has to say about how we think, behave, and go about constructing our reality and our relationships with others. In the last episode, we looked at three of our unconscious filters, and today we'll overview three more, which are our decisions, values and beliefs, and attitudes. As you listen today, remember that all seven filters are active in determining and shaping our experience of reality. In the current season of NLP Matters, we've been talking about the NLP model of communication. This model encapsulates and integrates our physiological, psychological and cognitive functioning as it explains how humans collect and process information through our five senses to make meaning and create our own map of reality. In the last episode, we began exploring the totally fascinating function of our seven unconscious filters, starting with time, space, matter and energy. We then looked at how language works as a filter. And finally, we analysed the critical role our memories play in shaping our present reality. To quickly recap, remember that from moment to moment we have available to our senses a mind-boggling volume of information. In order to function effectively, we must select and focus on the information that is, at some level, the most important to us. And to this end, we utilise the processes of deleting, distorting and generalising the incoming information. The outcome of applying these three processes is that we successfully reduce the overwhelming volume of data to a manageable flow, taking it from about 2 million bits of information a second to a maximum of around 130 bits of information per second, which we continue to delete, distort and generalise as we group the data together and create chunks. Research indicates that humans can effectively take in and recall about 7 plus or minus 2 chunks. The big question that remains unanswered, however, is how do we choose what information to focus on? Or, if we flip it, how do we know which bits of information to delete, which bits to distort, and which bits to generalise? Now, of course, there's no one answer to this question. However, in NLP, we acknowledge that a big part of choosing what we notice is determined by our amazingly efficient system of unconscious filters that continually operate in the background, deleting, distorting and generalising. Rather like having a torch that lights up part of a dark room, 
But in this instance, it's a smart torch because it has particular settings that tell it where to point and which part of the room to light up. In our previous episode, we discussed the filter of time, space, matter and energy, the filter of language and the filter of memories and how they hone our attention. Today, we're exploring another three filters. First, decisions. Then, our values and beliefs filter. And then, our attitudes filter. So let's get cracking. Decisions form a powerful filter because quite simply, our unconscious mind will focus attention onto things, people and events that align with decisions we've already made. Sometimes we are aware of the decisions we are using to filter information in and sometimes we are not. For example, the first time I was asked by a dear friend to participate in the Great Victorian Bike Ride, I considered the request from within the frame of a decision that I had consciously made a few months earlier. That decision was to embrace new opportunities by saying yes, then working out how. And that's what I did. I said yes immediately. Now, from the perspective of observers, this decision to commit to a 560km cycling event, when I didn't even own a bike, and knowing that the last time I had actually cycled anywhere was about 30 years earlier, seemed rather rash. From my perspective, however, it was in total alignment with my recent decision to embrace new opportunities by saying yes than working out how. And throughout my preparation for the Great Vic bike ride, I continued to filter in the sensory information that reinforced and made me right about my choice. I noticed that every year about 3,000 bicycle enthusiasts joined the Great Vic bike ride to ride around a section of Victoria for 9 or 10 days. This gave me social proof that this was a good choice. As I analysed the riding plan, I saw that the 560 kilometres was divided up into daily rides, beginning with about 60 kilometres and building up to a 100 kilometre day, then tapering back to a final day of approximately 60 kilometres again. I thought this structure gave us time to build up our strength to do the big 100 kilometre day and then allowed for some recovery time afterwards. And I heard about all the fun, connection, beautiful scenery and camaraderie experienced on the ride, which continued to reinforce my decision to join this rollicking adventure in the company of a delightful friend. Thus I knew I was right to make this choice. Now, in addition to filtering in information that told me I was right, I also started to notice all kinds of useful cycling things I hadn't paid any attention to before. I suddenly saw lots of people on the road on bikes, and because I was going to buy a new bike, I started to notice what kinds of bikes they had. I also started to notice details about the bikes that I had previously deleted. There were road bikes, mountain bikes, hybrids, the gearing and braking equipment, as well as the other kinds of gear cyclists had, such as all the accessories, like different lights, water bottles, seats, clothing, shoes, and things like that. 
As I drove around in my normal day-to-day commuting, I started commenting on the width of the shoulders on the road and identifying safe roads to do my cycling training on. From the moment of making my decision, it was as if my environment suddenly transformed. There were bikes and cyclists and things important to cycling everywhere, as if they had a light shining on them. And now I had access to all this fascinating stuff that I had never paid attention to before. My decision to ride had told my unconscious mind, focus on these things. I had given my unconscious mind a command about what to pay attention to. And the other intriguing thing is that when we make a decision, not only will we notice details in the environment that relate to that decision, but we'll also tend to filter in the things that tell us, yep, that decision is the right one. Because after all, we do love being right. And for those of us who are interested in or have done some work around the ego, we would recognise the need to be right as one of the primary needs of the ego. So once we've made a decision, we're very effective at coming up with reasons and justifications that confirm the decision we made was the right one. Like me on the Great Vic bike ride, I constantly thought things like, oh, I got a pretty good deal on that bike, and I noticed when similar bikes sold for a similar price, or when I saw the same bikes on the ride, and even though it wasn't an overly common type of bike, I of course thought, yep, that bike looks great. Psychologists refer to this underlying tendency to notice, focus on and give greater credence to evidence that fits with our existing decisions as confirmation bias. Anything that aligns with or supports that decision and the beliefs around that decision, you'll notice. And anything that doesn't align with it, you'll ignore or delete. We're constantly seeking and filtering in the information that aligns with the decisions that we've already made. The next filter we'll look at is that of values and beliefs. And like our decisions, our values and beliefs make powerful filters that guide us as we delete, distort and generalise information available in our environment. Some beliefs are conscious and work in much the same way as decisions. Because after all, a belief is quite often a long-held decision. So, to give us a bit of variety, I want to focus primarily on the beliefs and values that operate at a more unconscious level. Let's look at beliefs first. According to Robert Diltz and Judith Delosier, beliefs determine how events are given meaning and provide the motivation and permission for our behaviour. When we hold a belief, it means that we know something. And because we know it, we'll also generally assume that an alternative is not possible. This is how beliefs close off new possibilities. Now remember that being able to close off possibilities is an important strategy if we hope to be efficient and successful in our lives. Without this capability, we would struggle to make change, choices and move forward. Rather, we'd be locked in a state of indecision, confusion and possibly overwhelm. However, it's also true that our propensity to hang on to beliefs can also be limiting, as it means 
we tend to delete information that contradicts our beliefs, even when there is stark evidence that they need to change. A great example of the power of changing beliefs can be found in the story about the four-minute mile. Prior to the 6th of May 1954, it was a widely accepted belief that no human being would ever be able to run a mile in under four minutes. It was considered beyond human capability. And, like many of these old beliefs, there was a lot of scientific and anecdotal evidence with all the accompanying reasons and justifications to support this old belief. Not surprisingly, up until this point of time, no one had really got close to a four-minute mile with the record standing at 4 minutes and 1.04 seconds. And then along came Roger Bannister, who did break through the four-minute barrier. Suddenly, what had been accepted as a fact became nothing more than a challenge. The belief was broken, and what do you think happened? The very next month, it was broken again by Australian John Landy. And within three years, runners had run under four minutes a staggering 15 times. Why? Because now no one believed in the barrier. It was already broken. And as a consequence, all these other runners lined up to do their fastest times without the constraint of a limiting belief as a barrier. Now runners started to filter in things from the environment that said, you can run faster than a four-minute mile. And I want you to think about that. What are the limiting beliefs we hold on to? Imagine how this works for people who hold the belief that they are unlovable. What are they filtering in? And what are they filtering out that enables them to be right about this belief? Perhaps they're deleting and ignoring those times when someone shows them kindness, consideration and love. Maybe they filter in only those times when they're being treated badly or being ignored. What distortions must they make if someone tells them they are loved? Do they hear this as an attempt to manipulate them? Even relatively innocent everyday occurrences, like if a friend is running late, might be interpreted as evidence of not being loved. It may even be generalised to mean they never care or they always forget about me. In contrast, if we decided that we are totally, absolutely lovable, we'd be filtering in totally different information as we delete, distort and generalise these same interactions. Now, let's take a look at values. Like beliefs, we most likely hold both conscious and unconscious values. Beliefs and values are intimately entwined. Together they tell us why we are the way we are, or why we do the things we do. Values are surrounded by a cluster of beliefs that usually connect into specific concrete behaviours or outcomes, which we then perceive as evidence that we are successfully fulfilling our values. The main distinction I'd make between values and beliefs is the level of specificity. Values are more general than beliefs. 
This means we can hold some quite specific beliefs, such as a balanced diet requires us to eat a rainbow of colours every day. A specific belief such as this could align with a value like vibrant health. If we held this value, we would most likely have a number of other beliefs that aligned with it. Perhaps something like aerobic exercise 60 minutes every day is essential for our bodies. Or we could even hold a belief about having a minimum of seven hours sleep a day, drinking water, and many other things that together seem to support us in living in alignment with our value of vibrant health. When we're acting in alignment with our values, we tend to feel a sense of harmony, alignment, or congruence. When we're not behaving or producing outcomes that meet our values, we tend to feel out of sync, incongruent, and dissatisfied. Sometimes we may say we hold a value, but we've not specified the beliefs nor developed the evidence we need to know how to act in alignment with the value. This is a common issue in companies and corporations that develop a list of values but fail to add the beliefs that are essential to guiding us and our actions to ensure the value is enacted fully. To identify our values, we need to ask ourselves questions like, what is most important to you? What drives you? What do you really care or feel passionate about? What keeps you going when the going gets tough? We may hold values such as success, love, recognition, responsibility, creativity, pleasure, financial freedom, family, teamwork. There's no end to the possible values we may hold. Values are simply an expression of what we hold dear in our lives. Values also exist in a hierarchy so that some values are more important than others. An example would be someone who values family over professional success. This hierarchy might shape the structure of that person's life. They may turn down work that is too demanding of their time because it would interfere with family. Ironically, they could also accept the work as they believed it would enable them to better provide for their family. Different people holding the same values may behave in totally different ways, yet both believe they're living in alignment with their values. This is where the power of deletion, distortion and generalisation is blatantly evident. Two people with the same values taking what seems to be outwardly opposite directions and each of them will filter in evidence that they are making the right choice and living in alignment with their own values. In fact, they could even look at the other person and be quite critical of their choices because they see them as not putting family first. Our values are almost all locked and loaded very early in our lives. Most of us model values from our family, friends, associates, culture and religious beliefs we grow up with. Some people do make changes to their values later on in life, and it's important to remember that we can make choices over the values and beliefs that we do have. If we have values and associated beliefs that aren't supporting or serving us, then we can change them. NLP includes many powerful tools that can be used to change our values, beliefs and behaviours. When we do make the choice to create change, 
or transform our values and beliefs, it means that then we'll start to notice and filter in things that are consistent with our new values and beliefs. The next filter is attitudes, which are clusters of values and beliefs. And again, they work in the same way as our other filters. This cluster flows through in behaviour, strategies, thinking patterns, expectations, and of course, values and beliefs. Attitudes are also reflected in language and memories. Many years ago now, I went on a day outing with my family, Peter, the four children, my sister, brother-in-law, his parents, and my mum. Quite a large group. We had enjoyed a delightful extended morning at an open sanctuary with kangaroos, wallabies, possums, koalas, and an enormous variety of native birds and reptiles. And as we headed home, we were all starving. Fortunately, there was a lovely cafe on the way where we planned to have lunch. On arrival, we eagerly took our seats and scanned the menu, choosing from some truly scrumptious options. I went to the register to place our order and took out my credit card to pay. At this point, the guy who owned the shop said, Unfortunately, we don't take credit cards. In fact, we only take cash. My disappointment was palpable, as we didn't have sufficient cash to pay for the lunch. And there was nowhere within about 10 kilometres where we could access cash. The thought of getting everyone still starving back into the cars and driving off to find another place to eat was extremely daunting. Anyone who's ever had to transport four starving children would appreciate what I mean. The owner was not perturbed, however. He said to me, I know people are basically good and I trust you. Just have your lunch and send me the money later. I was almost too good to be true. Here we had a man who embraced an attitude of goodness and benevolence. This attitude no doubt reflected his high value of trust his belief that people are honest and that taking the risk of not getting paid was for him just the right thing to do. No doubt he had filtered in lots of evidence that supported his attitude, much to our relief. We all enjoyed our delicious meals, which seemed to taste even better, seasoned with the owner's generosity and belief in us. I recall it was a considerable bill for lunch, with four hungry kids and seven adults. And as we left, we took the handwritten bill and promised yet again to send through the money as we said our farewells. The owner sent us off with a broad grin, as friendly as could be, still reassuring us it was all okay and we could just send him the money when we got back home. Of course, early the next day, I ensured we had sent him off the money And now, even years later, I'm still touched by his generosity, which was reflective of his attitudes about his fellow humans. I sometimes ask myself when I come across people who have high distrust, what must it be like to live in their reality? I'm always grateful knowing that I can choose what I notice. And our cafe guy gave us a powerful example of the joy that we all get from noticing what is good when you can.
attitudes are also very apparent when we observe people who belong to the same groups. Whether it be a religion, a political party, even a profession, the shared attitudes are on display in shared activities, language and behaviours. For example, if we look at conservationists, or as they're commonly known, greenies, there are a whole heap of values, beliefs and behaviours that are shared within this group. Values such as sustainability, beliefs in science, attitudes such as the importance of conservation of the natural environment, using renewable energy. Again, we can see how attitudes encompass values, beliefs, language, memories, and in this instance, the time, space, matter and energy filter is also key with dates and deadlines being negotiated on the activities being planned and implemented to minimise the impact of humans on nature and climate. Remember, our purpose in exploring these filters is to answer the question, how do we choose what information to focus on? Because in order to function effectively, we must select and focus on the information that is, at some level, the most important to us. In NLP, the belief is that we get what we focus on. The role of our decisions, values, beliefs and attitudes is crucial in determining what we do focus on as we actively create our internal representation or map of reality. And of course, we have also created our filters decisions we have made, the values we absorbed or chose, the beliefs we live with, and our attitudes have all been constructed consciously and unconsciously throughout our lives. We're focusing on our own internal representation that we have constructed by filtering in information that already aligns with the decisions we've made, the memories and beliefs we've got, the language and the values and attitudes we've probably inherited from when we were children. Logically, we can see that our experience of reality is in fact our construction. Whatever we think is real is only real to us because we noticed, heard or felt it. As we grow and develop the filters that direct our attention and sensory selection, it's important to also acknowledge These too have been designed to focus on things that reinforce our existing map of reality. Whilst for some of us, the dawning realisation that we are in fact making up our own reality every day can be a bit confronting, and we could choose to focus on that, or not. In contrast, I suggest we begin to imagine what we can do with our reality knowing that we do get to choose. I trust you can see how we're constantly applying filters that have a profound effect on which 130 or so bits we filter in. And logically we know that by changing what we notice, we change our whole experience of reality, which I think is kind of cool. I hope you will continue to reflect on how your filters work. What are you focused on as you ask yourself, how is that working for me right now? Make sure you join me in the next NLP Matters episode 
when we explore the final of our seven unconscious filters, our meta-programs. Stay awesome, and I look forward to connecting with you in the next episode. Wow, thanks for showing up and listening in. We would love to hear from you. Send your thoughts, ideas, or questions via email to joanne at destinypursuit.com.au. Now it's time to take today's recipe out into your own life. Notice the differences that show up as you apply it. We'd love to hear how you are progressing with your new approach.